Oh, we're going to have some fun. First John chapter 3. If you'd like to follow along in your Bible, I like to have fun. If, if all we're doing is waiting to go to heaven when we die, that cheapens Christianity. Like, like if, if Jesus asked you, why are you following me? If your only answer is, well, I'd hate to go to hell when I died. But that, that's very degrading to Jesus. That, that'd be like your wife asking you, why did you marry me? And your only answer is the other chick was ugly, right? Like the, you, you, you just, you wouldn't do that, right? So, um, so if Jesus asked you, why are you following me? Your answer should be, I'm following you because I want to respond to your love for me by partnering with you to do whatever it is you want to do on the earth, namely bring your kingdom here. Um, you know, will you go to heaven when you die? Yes. And that's a good message if you're 90 or, or if you've lost someone. But honestly, it's very important in Jesus to know that death doesn't get the last word, but that's hardly the end of the story. The story isn't to sit around on our butt and wait to go to heaven when we die. The story is to get busy about bringing heaven to every place we see hell right here today. And that's what the church is here to do. The church isn't here to get more people to heaven. The church is here to bring heaven to every place they see hell around it. And, and, and so I want, I want to talk to you about that dynamic of the church day. This is um, from 1 John. Now, um, this is in the beginning of 1st. This is in the middle of 1st John. So I can't really read it out of the middle without setting it up because it's not fair. Um, 1st John was written by a pastor named John who followed Jesus, who, who was writing back to some churches in the first century. And um, to understand this, we got to understand that by 60 AD, uh, this is going to surprise some of you, that, but the church was starting to divide over doctrinal disagreements. Okay, and so here's what had happened. Um, a group of people that Jesus had left on the earth to bring the kingdom of heaven here actually lost their focus on that mission and started dividing themselves over disagreements over scripture, which we would, do, we would never do that, right? And so, and so it, by, by, by the time this was being written, there was three big arguments, okay? Um, one, the first big argument was, and let me, let, you, let me let you know something about pastors, okay? I sometimes feel sorry for pastors because all of us, um, started in ministry with the same idea. And this was the idea. We want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. That's honestly it. Like, we, we all went to Bible college, we all got trained, and we all did what we did to be where we are because we actually believe we want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. And that's how it starts. But it never ends that way. Because then you start pastoring. And, and, you, and, and you, you pastor and you, you think, you find yourself spending 25% of your week being a bad real estate agent, right? So you got to work out where are we meeting and where's a building and can we build a building and can we have a building and flipping California is expensive and it's in, and there's, there's all of these things going on. And then you got, then you got people's opinions about the buildings and where buildings should be. And, and, and you're just thinking, I just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. Then another 25% of your week, you're spent dealing with people's personal problems, okay? And we don't mind helping people through tragedy and things like that, but it's the self-inflicted ones that do it over and 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 over again. And they, that just gets annoying, flat, to be flat honest. And so what happens is, is you just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place, but you spend 25% of your week being a bad real estate agent, another 25% of your week dealing with people's personal problems, and then you spend another 25% of your week um, being a bad theological referee because people like to argue about the Bible. And when they argue about the Bible, especially when they don't know what they're talking about. They have to bring it to someone they think knows what they're talking about. And so all these petty arguments come into your desk and you end up being the one who has to solve it. And you, you end up in a situation where literally a third of the world is starving to death and you're trying to solve an argument between two petty people over one petty verse of scripture. And you're thinking, these people are so annoying and you can't say that because if you say that, then they'll get mad. And, then, and, it's, and you're just thinking, can we lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place? And so by the time you get around to 
the doing what it is you wanted to do. You really don't have much energy to do it because you spent 90% of your energy doing the things you don't want to do. Okay, and, and, and that's how it was back then as well. Can you imagine trying to pastor a church in the first century? How hard that would have been. That would have been so hard. Can you imagine trying to pastor a church with no book? We had no Bible. The Bible as we have it did not come around until 325 AD. You're trying to pastor a church with no book. Here's all you know. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. And rumor has it he ascended into heaven. And the confusing part is he didn't take his followers to heaven with him. It's almost like going to heaven wasn't the point. He, he, he doesn't take them to heaven with him. He leaves his followers who are supposed to go to heaven with him. He leaves them on the earth to establish heaven on the earth so that when he comes back from heaven to establish heaven on the earth, it's already established. And then you're left to wrestle with what that means. And all you know is, is Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. You, you have no Bible. You, you have uh, little bits of scrolls of parts of the Old Testament. And, and you're getting together on a regular basis and you're reading pieces from Leviticus and you're discussing what does this mean now that Jesus has lived and died and rose again? And of course, people have opinions about that. And so by 60 AD, your church is starting to divide. And the first big argument was there was a group of people who said, okay, Jesus lived, check. Jesus died, check. Jesus rose from the dead, check. We believe all that. But what we also think is that that's impossible. So Jesus likely wasn't a real man. He likely just was a 33-year spiritual aberration. And so there was a group of people who said, we believe in Jesus, but we don't believe he had flesh on. And there was another group of people who said, we believe in Jesus, and he actually came bodily because we saw him eat, and it didn't pass all the way through him. And so you've got, you've got, by 60 AD, you've got a group of people who say, we believe Jesus came in flesh. And you've got another group of people saying, we believe he didn't come in flesh. And the poor pastor's just thinking, I just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. Then the next argument was, was how well did the cross work? And so there was a group of people who said the cross worked real well. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of, just Christian, no, the whole world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. So, 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 so there was a group of people who said, you know what? Jesus intended to forgive the whole world, and he went through with it. He didn't, like, just jump off the cross. And so he intended to forgive the whole world. Therefore, he forgave the whole world. And so the cross worked for Jews, Gentiles, those people across the sea there, the people over that mountain we've never met yet. The cross worked for everybody. And, and then there was another group of people who said, no, the cross only works for people who do our rituals, who, only, who become like us. And the, the poor pastor's just thinking, I, I just want to leave more people of faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. Then the third big argument was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so there's a group of people who said, faith in Christ alone inherits eternal life. There's another group of people who said, faith in Christ alone, along with doing our rituals and rites and festivals and all this, that, that, that's what you have to do to inherit eternal life. And the poor pastor's just thinking, I want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. Then in the middle of that, you're trying to pastor in a place where there is no book. There is no book. And so in the middle of all that, you'd have all these arguments, and then in the middle of your church service, you'd have some guy stand up at the back and say, you know what, I know that we've been arguing about this for a while, and I want everybody to know I'm a prophet, and I have a word from God on this. And so they give their word from God on this, and you're supposed to test the prophecy, but the problem is, how do you test the prophecy without a book? How do you do that? I mean, what's your criteria? Are you nice? What's going on here, right? 
So you have one group of people who says that, that Jesus came in flesh, another group of people who said he didn't. You had another group of people saying the cross worked, another group of people said it didn't work so well. You had another group of people saying that eternal life is in faith in Christ alone. You got another group of people saying, ah, you got to do some rites, religious festivals, things like that. Then you got prophet A saying this, and you got prophet B saying this. Then in the middle of all that, you got some guy that shows up and says, listen, I went to junior high with Peter's stepbrother, Bill, and I'm telling you, I asked Bill what Jesus would say about this, and Bill said he asked Peter, and Peter's pretty sure Jesus would say this. And then this other guy over here says, you know what, that's nothing. I went to senior high with Jesus' stepbrother, James, and I asked James about this, and James is pretty sure that Jesus would say this. And the problem was, was that there wasn't an MP3 file folder full of stuff that you could go check. You had to just go with it. And the poor pastor's just thinking, I want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. And everybody's arguing about all these things. It's not much different than today. A third of the world's starving, and the church would rather waste its time arguing about some little verse here or some little verse there, or worse, what happens after you die, or the private sexual behavior of 1.4% of people, or something. You've got a third of the world starving to death and the church isn't known for the people combining their resources to fix that. We're known for being the people sitting around arguing about theology. And we wonder why our argument is not very compelling. It's because we've lost the point. John writes into this situation to remind them of the point. And if you go and read 1 John from the beginning, here's what you'll find. Here's what he says. Everything you saw in Jesus Christ was true since the beginning of time. Jesus did not inaugurate a new truth about God. Jesus simply showed you what God was always like. That's number one. Number two, when he forgives your sins, he forgives all of it. He doesn't leave anything unturned. Number three, he works for the whole world, not just for a certain elite group of people. That's number three. And then he says this, now I'm done with theology. And essentially what he says is this, what difference does it make if you're right theologically if you're not kind? What difference does it make if Victory Outreach Heart of the Bay, what difference does it make if you're the most theologically correct church in the, in the entirety of the Oakland area if you're not known for being the most loving church in the whole entirety of the Oakland area? What difference does it make if you're right about God and you're not? No one's right about God. But what difference does it make? Let's say you're absolutely 100% correct about God. What difference does it make if you're right about God, if your rightness about God is not motivating you to be more loving to your brother or sister? What difference does that make? Now, that's where he's at. And that's where we find these words. If you could put the slides up for me. This is what it says. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised. No, I'm surprised. Do not be surprised. This is in 1 John 3 verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. We know. Listen to this. I was hoping you could see it, but listen to me. I'm reading it word for word. We know that we have passed from death to life because we get all of our doctrine straight. Nope. 
We know that we have passed from death to life because there's no error in our belief system. Nope. We know that we have passed from death to life because we've said all of our sins to a priest. Uh-uh. We know that we have passed from death to life because we responded at an altar. We prayed a magic prayer so we could know we go to heaven when we die. Uh-uh. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now, a couple of observations. One, when you're loving, you're experiencing some version of eternal life now. John says, John says, forget what happens after you die. When you love, when you choose to love your neighbor, you are experiencing some version of life now. When you hate, you're experiencing some version of death now. So for us, life and death are distinct realms. You live, you die. Not to a first century Jew. A first century Jew saw life and death as dynamic dimensions that you moved in and out of. If you were living in God's ways, you were living in life, light, and increase, something that led you to abundance and shalom and wholeness. If you were living outside of God's ways, you were living in death, darkness, and decrease, something that would bring your life to disrepair. But no matter how far down the road of disrepair you get, if you repent and come back under God's ways, you're living now in life, light, and increase. Either way, God forgives you and God loves you. The quality of your life is what's at stake. Like people who say, oh, I can do whatever I want, God will forgive me. Is that true? Yes, that's true, but your life will suck. Absolutely. You go out and steal something today. Will God forgive you? Yes. Will you go to jail? Yes. Absolutely. Okay, next slide. Very good. Next slide. See, for us, life and death are distinct realms. For John, there's something you move in and out of. Then maybe let's say it this way. Next slide. For, for, for us, the question is always, is there life after death? Like people are always wondering, Shane, what happens after you die? What happens after you die? The book of Ecclesiastes says it this way. No person can tell you exactly what happens after you die. Anybody who claims they know what happens exactly after you die, unless I can see a death certificate and like, they like rose, not a vision, not a dream, and plus it's missing the point. For, for us, it's what happens after you die. What John's trying to answer is, how can I have life before I die? Why sit around and wait to die? That's, there's such a better life than that. How do you have life before death? The word he used there is metababakament. Metababakament. It's, a, it's a, a big word. It just means to change basis. Essentially, he says, if you find your life on the basis of death, darkness, and decrease, you can change basis to life, light, and increase with one choice. And that choice is not to be doctrinally correct. There was no such thing as doctrinally correct. They didn't have a book. They didn't have a book. They had one belief that was absolute. Jesus was the Christ. He was crucified. The resurrection happened. Other than that, everything was up for discussion. Okay? So it wasn't being doctrinally correct. It wasn't going to Bible study on a regular basis, although all that helps. It was all of your efforts to know God lead you to one thing, and that is a decision to love your neighbor. You know that you have passed from death to life because you love each other. Metababakamen. Now, this has uh, um, some implications for us. Next slide. John says one entry point into life is to commit to loving others. Now, now to understand this, maybe we could say this a couple different ways. S central to understanding Christianity is understanding that all of life is a gift. Everything we have is a gift, even big things, all right? Like, for instance, life. The fact that you're here. When's the last time you thought about that? I exist. Did you deserve it? Any of you put your parents together? Nope. 
Any of you give them amorous feelings for one another? No, nope. you don't deserve to be here. And if I can make another point, you were born in America. If you can complain about, I think the complaint department in heaven just mutes if it's an American. For those of you going to the Philippines, wait. If you've never seen it, wait. People, I think an angel in heaven goes, God, somebody down there is complaining again. Oh, okay, where's he from? America. Shut it off. He lives, he lives in a country where they can drive a motor car on a paved road to a store that prepares food for them. Running clean water comes out of taps, and they're complaining. Are you serious? Life, free, free. You don't deserve to be here. And more importantly, you don't deserve to be born where you were born. You could have been born in North Uganda. Yeah, you say, Shane, my family was dysfunctional. Yeah, but they, they're not in North Uganda. Yeah, but Shane, my dad was an addict. Yeah, but he doesn't chop people's heads off. You weren't born in North Iraq. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but Shane, my mom was a bit critical and never told me she loved me. Yeah, I know, but you weren't born in South Sudan. You, you had food. And if you needed water, there was a tap. And if you needed a shower, there was a tap. And there's a store down the road that sells bad tacos. But nonetheless, they sell tacos, see. It's like, wait a minute, life? Free. Breath? Free. Everybody take a deep breath in and let it out. That was free. For now. At some point, they'll decide to tax it, but right now, free. The, the only person who doesn't take breath for free and for granted is asthmatics. You take your breath for granted because you do it without thinking until you're choking. And then you'd pay a million dollars for the next breath. It all of a sudden becomes priceless. Breath, free. How about forgiveness? Free, forgiveness. How many of you earned your forgiveness? Nobody, right? So, so nobody's in a situation where you would say, you know what, God wasn't gonna forgive me, but I prayed a magic prayer at the right moment, the right time, in the right posture, with my head caught in the right way, and God was like, you know what, I wasn't gonna forgive you, but now I will. Ridiculous. Free. Forgiveness. Free. Which leads me to this question. Where would you be today had Jesus not touched your life? If you ever lose sight of that, you'll run the risk of looking down on others. Forgiveness. Free. Resurrection. Free. Resurrection is free. And we take it for granted because it's literally everywhere. Everybody take a second. Look at the back of your hand. This is a great example I can give you. And you can see it. I don't have to, you know, nobody. You look at the back of your hand, okay? I want you to become aware of this. All the skin on the back of your hand is brand new from 28 days ago. None of that skin was there 28 days ago. It's brand new from 28 days ago. Which is why you don't panic. When you wake up in the morning and there's dandruff on your pillowcase, you don't go, oh no, I'm losing skin at an alarming rate. At this rate, I'll be dead in 28 days. No. Why? Because we take resurrection for granted. Right now, your body is resurrecting itself over and over and over again, and you're not having to do anything to do it. Not one thing. That, that's like when fall comes, leaves will fall off the trees. No one panics. No one goes outside and goes, Oh no! The trees are dying. 
No, you, you've, lived, you've lived long enough to know that springtime's coming. Yeah, resurrection happens. And we take it for granted because it's free. Salvation. Free. Eternal life. Free. So, so let, me, let, me, let me make a point here that should be obvious, but maybe we haven't thought about this enough. I'm talking to a group of people who were fortunate enough to have breath and health in a country like America who've been forgiven by God, have a guarantee of resurrection and eternal life and free salvation, and we're complaining about what? Let me say it this way. Where have you lost the opportunity to be in awe of what God's given you at the altar of having to figure it all out? Like, have you lost your awe of the fact that you have breath and forgiveness? Because if we lose our awe of that, that's when we can go petty. Anytime I hear somebody being petty, I'm thinking, my first thought is, this is a person who's lost sight of the bigness of God. No chance. No, no chance. Like one, one, the great Christian philosopher, Dallas Willard, no relation to me, um, he said, he said this, one of the tragedies of getting older is you learn the ability to control your face. Now, I'm going to say that again. I want you to think about it. One of the tragedies of getting older is we learn the ability to control our face. A six-year-old can't control their face. You give a six-year-old a 10-cent piece of candy, and what do they do? Wow. Whoa. Cavities. Tooth decay, stinky breath. Yes. You tell a 36 year old God's forgiven them of everything, and they're like, yeah. Life still kind of stinks, though. We've lost the, one of the tragedies of getting older is we lose sight of the big things God's given us because we can't figure it all out. Let me, let me say it this way Would you rather be overwhelmed with the presence of God in worship, or would you rather understand all the theology of worship? I would just rather be overwhelmed. If I can understand it, that's a bonus. But if not, we'll say it this way. Would you rather see someone healed or would you rather understand healing? I just, I just rather see them healed. If, we, if I can understand how that happened, great, but I don't need to. Would you rather see someone delivered from demonic oppression or would you rather understand deliverance? i just rather see it, right? And so, so where have we lost the opportunity to be overwhelmed at the big things of God? My, my brother has four children. Right, And so I've, I've been absolved from the command to be fruitful and multiply because my brother did it for both of us. And my, my, my brother's got a little kid named Corey. And Corey is five. Corey thinks I'm awesome. And I think he's awesome. And he comes over to my house because he thinks my house is awesome. So I, I'm going home tomorrow morning. I haven't been home since January 15th. And so I'm going home tomorrow morning. I'm sure they'll be there tomorrow night when I'm there. And Cor Corey will come up to me and Last time I saw him, he came over to the house. He says, hi, Uncle Shane. I said, hey, buddy. He said, where's your iPad? Because, see, he doesn't have an iPad, so I gave him my iPad. He comes back two minutes later. Uncle Shane, you don't have many games. I said, I know, buddy. I don't really play games on my iPad. And he said, he said would you buy me a game? I said, sure. We're, we're, I, don't, I just got to figure out how to get a game on here. He's five. He goes, Uncle Shane, the app store. Right, so I let him choose his game, plants versus zombies. 
99 cents. Boom, downloaded. I handed him a 99 cent gift. And because he's five, he can't control his face. So he's five. I hand him a 99 cent gift and it was, wow. But you tell a room of grown adults that God's forgiven them of everything. And they look at you like this. Hmm. Hmm. Why? Because when we grow older, we learn the ability to control our face. And we become less impressed about things we should be ultimately overwhelmed by. Maybe we can say it another way. Next slide. If life is a gift, then certain things don't belong in the light. Greed. Complaining. Like at Christmas, when you hand someone a gift, if, if, if someone handed someone else a free gift at Christmas and they open the gift and, and they, they say, is that all you got, really? Is that the best? Honestly, is that the best effort? If that happens, is the problem with the gift giver or the gift receiver? But, but how many of us, how many, let's say it this way, have you ever lost sight of what God has given you at the altar of wanting someone else's life? At the altar of wanting what you don't have? I, I used to be on staff at a gigantic church. And one of my jobs there was I was the single adults pastor. We did a great job. My last Monday night there, I think we had 280 singles, you know, something like that. It was a pretty good effort. And um, I, I liked most of it. I hated other parts of it because singles are, are notorious for wanting what they don't have, namely a spouse. So, so half my week was spent hearing this. Shane, I just want to be married. 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 And I'm thinking, no, you don't. Look, can I be frank? If you're single, listen to me. And let me just be frank. If you're stressed being single, you don't have a prayer on earth coping being married. So you're stressed out being single, and here's your prayer. Lord God, give me one of your sons. I'm so stressed being single. Lord God, give me one of your daughters. Really? I just want to be, want to be married. I just want to be married. I just want to be married. And I'm thinking, listen, if you can't bloom being single, you don't have a hope. What are you, you going to have, more time? You going to have more money? You going to have more energy while you're chasing kids around? I mean, if you can't serve God being single, you don't have a prayer on earth serving God being married. If you can't bloom in a single adult field, now look, if you're a single mom, ignore what I'm fixing to say, okay? Because single moms is different. But if you, can't, if, you can't, if you can't win financially as a single adult, what prayer do you have? You do what you want to do when you want to do it. You don't have to ask anybody's permission. You don't have to worry about doing anybody wrong. You can work as hard as you want, as long as you want, and no one's spending your money other than you. And you can't make it? That's flipping helpless. I just want to be married. I just want to be married. I just want to be married. The problem was, my other job at the church was I was the church psychotherapist because I have my degree in it. So, so half my week was spent, I just want to be married. I just want to be married. I just want to be married. The other part of my week, I was doing all the church's marriage counseling. So half the week was, I just want to be married. I just want to be married. I just want to be married. And the other half of the week was, I want to be single. I want to be single. I want to be single. And I thought, I can hook y'all up. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and the truth is, no one wanted to bloom in the field God planted them in. 
If you're single, bloom there. And by the way, let me just be frank. There's no reason for me not to be frank. I'm your friend, okay? Listen, there is nothing attractive about a single adult who is focused on what they don't have. The most attractive single adults are the single adults who've got the throttle on full throttle doing what God has called them to do. And one day they look around and realize somebody's doing it next to me. That's attractive. Otherwise, it's just desperate. If you're a single adult, and I'm one, I'm a single adult. If you're a single adult, and I don't feel like my life, I, I don't feel like my life has missed a whole, whole lot. It's not like I'm sitting around going, oh, I would have made a difference in this world if I'd have just had a spouse. Man, please. Now, now, will I be single forever? No. But here's the truth of the matter is this. Is, is I, I, am got my, I got the throttle on full board doing exactly what God's called me to be. And one day I'll look around and someone's going to be doing it with me. And that's fine. But I'm not going to sit around being all desperate and I just want something I don't have. No, no. Everything I need to bloom where God called me to bloom is given to me right now. And you. And if you're married, make it the best marriage in the room. What other hope do you have? Be miserable? Honestly, everything you need to bloom where God planted you is in the field you're in. Changing fields never helps. Never helps. Never helps. And for goodness sake, you see, can I talk to you singles for a second? Put your list away. It's sad, it's embarrassing. Shane, Pastor Shane, I'm just praying for a spouse. I'm just praying for a spouse. I'm just believing God for a spouse. I'm just believing God for a spouse. Oh, shut up. <laughs> so you spend your whole life believing God for something you don't have when you're not using what you do. Pastor Shane, I have my list. I've got my list, Pastor Shane. Pastor Shane, this is who I'm believing God for. His, have you seen these lists? I asked a guy the other day, I said, show me your list. So he showed me his list. You should have seen this list. I'm sure it was a woman that did not exist. <laughs> this woman was gorgeous, intelligent, for the sake of appropriateness, shall we say curvy. She was resourceful, successful. She had money, and she was emotionally low maintenance, all in one power pack package. I looked at this list. I said, mate, this girl's a 10. He goes, I know, Pastor Shane, I know. You got to believe God for the best. Our God is bigger and stronger and mighty. You got to believe God. You're believing God. You got to believe God for the best. Of course she's a 10, Pastor Shane. Of course she is. I said, but mate, you're a four. Like on your best day, you're a four. <laughs> Girls like this don't marry people like you. Girls like this marry brain surgeons. If God brought this girl in your life, she wouldn't give you the time of day. You don't need this girl in your life. You need to become a seven. And then lower your standards 30% and something might happen. <laughs> you don't need to find the one. You need to become the one that the one you're looking for is looking for. <laughs> I 
<laughs> Pastor Shane is my love. Of course she's great. By the way, one more thing. And you married people better say amen to this because I'm right. Let me talk to you single adults for a second. Mm. Never, ever, 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 ever. Ask someone to change while you're dating. That you're already getting their best behavior. When you're dating someone, that's the behavior they're trying to impress you with. It's not real. If their best behavior needs to change, leave. Here's what you do when you're dating. Pick the thing about them that annoys you the most. Then watch how they act when they don't get their way. Multiply those two things by five. Add some interesting smells under the covers. And if you can live with that, you might have found the one. If you can't bloom in the field God planted you in, changing fields is not going to help. It's not going to help. Complaining. Complaining about wanting someone else's life. Really? You want someone else's life? You, 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 what, what, if, what if it was like just a roll of the dice and you could say, hey, trade in your whole life and you might get born in North Uganda. You might get born in South Sudan. No, 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 no. You, none of you take that. What you need to do is start believing God to become what you need to be right here. Let's say it this way. It, I, I, being a Christian is the sum total of getting what you don't deserve. Since you get what you don't deserve, you should treat others as they don't deserve. Kingdom people treat people how they're worth and not as they deserve. Let's go back to marriage for a second. Whoever has the best marriage in the room, I don't know who that would be, but whoever that is, I can tell you this about them. I can tell you that they've learned to treat each other as their worth and not as they deserve. You don't love your wife when she deserves it. There'll be days she deserves it. Other days, not so much. It's called life. You don't love your wife when she deserves it. You love your wife because she's worth it. You don't respect your husband because he deserves it. There'll be days he makes such brilliant decisions that he deserves your respect. There will be those days. Other days, he's going to be an idiot. That's called life. You don't respect your husband because he deserves it. You respect your husband because he's worth it. So here's my question. Since we receive what we don't deserve, we should treat others the same. Do we treat people as they deserve or as they're worth? Part of being a kingdom person who's living like part of the purpose of the church is being known in this community for right, wrong, or indifferent. Those people over there, they treat people how they're worth and not as they deserve. Yep. Let's keep going. Next slide. So John keeps going. This is just the same passage. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our life for our brothers and sisters. Pretty easy, right? You got what you don't deserve, give other people what they don't, right? Now watch how he applies this. If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Let me talk about that for a second. If, in other words, if you have the ability to meet a need, now let me stop on that sentence. If you have the ability to meet the need, it does you no good to feel bad about not meeting needs you have no ability to meet. 
If the need is $4 million and you've got $400, you're probably not the $4 million answer. But if you got $400 and $4 will feed somebody, you might be the $4 answer. The issue is a need you could meet. And here's what John says. Forget all your theology. Forget it. It's worthless anyway. Here's the truth of it. It doesn't matter if you're right about God. If in your rightness about God, you still have the ability to see a need you could meet and have the ability to turn your back on it. You, you see a need you could meet and you could turn your back on it and you think God lives in you how? That's John's point. Now watch what he says. How can love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words and speech, but with actions and truth. Watch this next slide. This is unbelievable. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. In other words, all this arguments and all this stuff, you gotta be wondering who's telling the truth. Here's how you know who's telling the truth. You don't listen to their argument, you listen to their life. You know who's on the side of truth by looking at how they love each other. Amazing. When we, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God's greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear children, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And next, and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The church of Jesus Christ needs to regain its power. And one of the ways to regain its power is to get off the doctrinal argument train and get on the loving people train. You got what you don't deserve. You should be known in this whole community as giving others what they don't deserve. Now, I want to examine that phrase. If anybody has material possessions and sees a brother or sister need and takes no pity on them, that doesn't read well in English. So anytime something doesn't read well, there's something underneath it. One of the ways you study the Bible, just to give you a quick tip as to how you can do this, is one of the simplest ways is to look at different translations and see what different translators saw there, okay? All right, so let me show you a few. Next slide. So in the NIV, it says, have no pity on them. In other words, if you see a brother or sister in need and you have no pity, how can the love of God in you be in you? The NLT says, show no mercy. So in other words, I see a need I could meet, and I choose not to have mercy on it at all, all right? The ISV says withhold compassion, all right? So, so I see a need I could meet, and I'm choosing to withhold loving kindness. The ASV says shut up compassion. But my personal favorite is the King James Version. Let me show you that one. Next slide. Shut it up, thou bowels on them. Man, how the English language has changed. In 1611, it was a good thing to open your bowels on somebody. It was a euphemism for being generous. I'd like to go on record though right now to say I would like all of you to keep your bowels shut in my general direction. You could just close your bowel. <laughs> let, let me show it to you in the original language. Here's the original language. Next slide. Kleese tashplakna. Kleese to close ta the shplakna. To close shplakna. Um, see, in, in the first century, their, their knowledge of medicine wasn't that great. Here's all they knew is that babies come out of there. Right? So you have a stomach, and it appears like a baby comes out of your stomach. And so they thought the stomach, the bowel, was the giving of life. Shplakna is actually a Greek word, if you break it down to its root, which is the muscle that a woman would use to push a baby out. So essentially, he's using this, he's actually using a comical phrase. Essentially, he's saying, 
Quit all your theological arguments. Get off your butt and open your bowels. Get off your butt and open your bowels. In other words, open up that part of you that can give life to others. See, it, was, it wasn't merely an intestinal body function to them. The, the bowel, the shplachna, was the place where life could come from. In today's world, we would say heart. Like in today's world, I might say, I love you with all my heart. Back then, they would go, that's disgusting. Like in the first century, if you said, I love you with all my heart, they'd go, ooh, what? What you would say is, one of the most romantic things you could say in the first century is, I love you with all my bowels. <laughs> with all the bowel within me, I adore you. <laughs> you just make my bowels feel full. So, so John, John says, John says one of the keys to entering into life is to open your shplachna. To open your shplachna. The next slide. Open your shplachna. To keep your shplachna open. In other words, to be so aware of the needs of others that you're constantly asking yourself, is that a need I could meet? No, it's not. Okay, then God has someone else to meet that need. But if it's a need I could meet, that I'm constantly living with an open shplachna to others. My hands are like this. How can I help? How can I show love? And you know what? He applies it materially. I think it has more applications than that. How about worship? I've been at Victory Outreach enough. I missed your worship today because I preached already twice this morning and I was rushing here. And so I didn't eat. And so I'd asked the, I asked the guy back there, I said, do I have 30 minutes to run eat? And I did, and so I came back in. But I could tell you this, that I love Victory Outreach's worship. At least the experiences I've had with it is pretty good. And I could tell you this, that when they were worshiping earlier, there would have been people in the room who were lost in the presence of God. There would have been other people looking at their watch. Same room. Why? Is one good and one bad? Uh-uh, that is not the issue at all. The difference is one has an open splatna to what's going on, and the other has a closed one. How about marriage? How much better would your marriage be if you heard the other person with an open heart instead of a closed one? How about work? Pastor Shane, I hate my job. I hate my job. I hate my job. I hate my job. So you change jobs. Then you hate that job. Then you change jobs. Then you hate the job. And the common denominator is you just hate the work. But how much better would your job be if you went to work tomorrow with an open shplachna instead of a closed one? looking to experience everything. Listen, even if you work at McDonald's, if you act like you own the place, one day you'll own the place. McDonald's is always looking for good people to expand their empire of horrible hamburgers. If you're a parent, you understand what I'm saying. Parenting a three-year-old is one thing. Someone said, I just can't control my three-year-old. What? You're four times their size. Get over here. No. Yes. 19 is different. 19, you parent a 19-year-old, they're an adult. Here's the problem. They need to make their own decisions, and they should be allowed to make their own decisions. The problem is they're 19. They're, they're stupid. Right? Because everybody's stupid at 19. There's no such thing as an intelligent 19-year-old. I mean, I've been 19. I was stupid. 
were you smart at 19? No. The only people who think they're smart at 19 are 19-year-olds. You get to 38, I thought I was smart at 19. I look back and go, I don't know how I survived. But So you tell your 19-year-old all the wisdom you have. And the 19-year-old goes, yes, Mom, yes, Dad. But they walk away and you know you lost. And it's not that your advice wasn't good. It's just their splatna was closed. But then there's other times you've poured out wisdom with a 19-year-old and you know it got in. And the difference is not your kid is good or your kid is bad. The difference is the difference between an open splatna and a closed one. What would happen if we lived every moment in life with an open splatna? What would happen if we allowed ourselves to be overwhelmed at life and breath and salvation? And what, if, what, would, what would happen if we allowed ourselves to be overwhelmed at meeting the needs of others? Let, let me see if we can say it this way. Next slide. Do you experience God yet leave the same? Is your story like, I come to church, I do my Bible study, I do all that, and my life's not the same. My life is never different. I, I don't think the Bible works. Yeah, the problem is, is that it works for the person next to you. So the difference isn't the word of God or the worship or the pastor. The difference is your splackness closed. Well, let me say it this way. Do you relate to someone who's hard to love? You know that person you just wish God would go ahead and take to heaven? That one? Maybe we could open... Let's say it this way. Do you struggle forgiving all sins, especially those who wrong you? Maybe we need to take a second and become aware of how much we've been forgiven. Let me, let me apply it the way John does at the end. Do you see a need you could meet? And this is critical. Do you see a need you could meet? Why don't you just take 10 seconds. I want you to pray a prayer that quietly before the Lord. And I want you to ask him this. If you're brave enough, I want you to ask him this. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to my heart right now a need I could meet? Please don't reveal to me a need I can do nothing about. You likely can't do anything about ISIS. But there's a single mom on your street that if you bought her one week's worth of groceries, it would get her ahead. Holy Spirit, reveal to my heart a need I could meet. Now I want you to pray this prayer just under your breath. Holy Spirit, give me the irresistible urge to respond to meet that need. Why don't you look this way? You say, Shane, I don't have any money. Okay. Let's remove money. Nobody's got money now. Money's over there. Here's something everybody in the room has the same amount of. Time. Everybody, same. You, Barack Obama, everybody, same amount of time. Could you not, could you not volunteer? You're, you're fortunate enough to be serving with a pastor that actually cares. Not as common as you think. He actually cares. You, you mean to tell me, like whoever's in charge of the ushers around here, parking lot people, you mean to tell me they couldn't use a few more hands? And, and what's your, could you not meet that need? What's your excuse? I can't be 20 minutes early? I can't stay 20 minutes late? Really? I don't know who's in charge of the children's church. I don't know. I just know I love them. And here's why I know I love them. Without them, this room would be full of six-year-olds running around right now. Maybe on your way out, you ought to take one second and thank whoever took care of the kids today. But whoever that is, whoever that person is, I'm sure they could use some extra hands. Is that not a need you could meet? What's your excuse? I can't be kind to children. 
Is that, honestly, is that, is that where you are? I can't be nice to kids. You say, no, I hate the mongrels. They're selfish little things. They're disgusting. They wipe their nose on their hand. They're just absolutely just disgusting. Okay, maybe you're not our children's person. <laughs> I, I don't know who's in charge of the teenagers and stuff here. I don't, but, but I, I know they're, they, they're doing a good job. May, I, let me tell you something about teenagers. In 30 years, they're going to be running the place. And you're going to be complaining about what they're doing. And you have no right to complain about what they're doing unless you're part of molding their value system early. Could you not, could you not volunteer? Could you not help? What I find is the people doing the most to help do the least complaining. People complaining the most are the people doing the least about it. What if you're, what if you're a musician? Let me be careful with this one, okay? But what if you're really good? Now listen, if you don't know if you're good, get it checked out by somebody not named Mom. It's very hard to make chicken salad out of chicken crap. But, but nonetheless, if you're really good, why not help? It requires no money. It, you, you can't show up 40 minutes early? Really? Play guitar? Sing? I mean, honestly. Honestly. But, but maybe you have a great teaching gift and they, 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 they value small groups. Maybe, maybe you've got a testimony. Maybe you used to be something and now you're not it and there's a whole group of people who are now are that and you have a story of hope that they don't have to be that. Maybe you do that. You say, you don't know me, Shane. You don't know me, man. I'm a jerk. I'm a jerk. No one would want me on their team. That's not true. Even if you're a jerk, you could be a sound guy. There's a wall separating you from all people. You don't even have to speak to anybody. You just sit back there and turn your knobs and make it sound good. You have to speak to no person. And if you're really introverted, they can dress you in all black and you can run the camera and you'll be like a camera ninja. No one even know you're there. There's a place for everybody. Here's your choices. You want to be the church? Here's your choices. You can sit around on your butt and wait to go to heaven when you die and hope the Niners win in between. And if that's your whole life, quite frankly, your life sucks. Or you can get off your butt and open your bowels. You can open your splachna and you can live every day partnering with something to bring the kingdom of heaven right here. What difference does it make if you're right about the Bible? if you're not motivated by the word of God to be loving. If you see a need you could meet and still turn your back on it, how can you say the love of God lives in you? I urge you all to live your life with an open shplacknut every single day. Thank you so much for letting me be part of your day. Grace and peace. God bless you.